give you a brief introduction before she gets started. Um, Dr. Bajak is, is an emergency physician and an intensivist caring for patients in the emergency department, the cardiothoracic ICU, and the MICU at the University of Washington Medical Center and Harborview Medical Center. And you've just heard how she's quite busy uh, bringing in patients across the region. She is a, a clinician educator, so near and dear to our heart, who uh, specializes in curriculum development and assessment with a focus on graduate medical education and extracorporeal life support, uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. She works with ELSO, the big national organization, on the ECMO Education Tax Task Force, and she has contributed to development of an international standardized ECMO curriculum. She also serves as the director of ECMO Education for the University of Washington and Harborview Medical Centers, and has partnered with Airlift Northwest to create the University of Washington Medicine ECMO Retrieval Team. So we're really lucky to have her speak on this topic. She certainly is an expert on it, and with that, I'll ask you to take away. Take it away. Thank you very much um, for having me, you guys. This is such an awesome idea to have a collaboration of uh, fellowships and do education together. Um, I think this is brilliant. I'm jealous. I want to bring it back home <laughs> to Seattle. Um, anyway, so I'm super excited to be here with you, with y'all. Um, and uh, what I want to start with talking about is, um, obviously, we're going to talk about ECMO, talk about who should go on, and then some common complications. And then I imagine there's a wide range of expertise with ECMO among all the fellows. Some people have been doing ECMO electives, and some people haven't cared for ECMO patients. So I'm hoping that we can kind of address all levels here. Um, and then at the, um, we're going to go through a couple of cases. And what I would love is when we, well, I'll give you a case. And if you can throw some thoughts into the chat, this is a safe learning environment. There is no judgment. There's no bad answers or wrong answers or just answers. And then we go through them and, and talk about it. So um, encourage interaction and questions at any time. Okay. If you have a question as we're going along, just oh, throw it in the chat. Um, great. So our outline is we're going to go through components of the circuit, make sure we're all on the same page, and then we'll go through BV and BA ECMO selection of patients, and then we'll go through some common complications or like physiologic curiosities. Um, so for our components, um, of course, VA ECMO, we're going to be drained from the central venous system, moving through a pump and gas exchange device and moving into the arterial system, so we're on cardiopulmonary bypass. And then VV, we're joining from the same venous system and returning to the same venous system. So we're just on pulmonary bypass. Um, and just a look at cranial configurations, the ones that I think are the most common would end up being bifemoral for VA, where the drainage cannula can be in the anywhere in the IVC or SVC with the return cannula and the common femoral arteries. So if you had a KUB, this would be the radiograph with the return cannula here and the drainage cannula all the way down here. And then this is just an image of a patient with drainage and return with bifemoral. Um, also with VA, we can do central VA. This is probably the second most common configuration where we're draining directly from the right atrium, which is this one right here through sternotomy, and then um, returning into the aorta, um, the proximal aorta here is the aortic cannula, um, right into the aorta. So true central cardiopulmonary bypass. 
for BV ECMO, um, we have the drainage cannula basically in the same place as VA, and then the return cannula coming into the right atrium, and then ideally with that jet of blood uh, going across the tricuspid valve. Um, and here's a picture of a patient um, who, uh, who has drainage cannula here in the groin and then returning into the IJ. And you can see that color difference that's fairly important to notice of dark red and of draining and bright red returning. If we have a chest radiograph, we can see the tip of the venous cannula here. Ideally, this is just with the tip in the right atrium to obviate chatter problems, um, which we'll talk about in a bit. And then the arterial return cannula or arterialized return cannula coming into the right IJ. It doesn't really matter how far apart they are, just as long as you're not um, recirculating too much, which is what we'll talk about um, later as well. Um, and the second most common configuration probably with VV ECMO is to have a dual lumen single cannula, which we have here, the Avalon and the Crescent are the two mo most common brands. So we have drainage coming from a dual stage uh, SVC and IVC lumen, um, which is going to be this portion of this cannula. Think of it as like a really giant um, triple lumen cannula or dual lumen cannula um, with like a, about a 31 or 32 French size. And then um, the return piece is the bright red piece here, and it's returning through this um, hole that's in the middle, and uh, it needs to be positioned correctly so that this jet of blood goes across the tricuspid valve. So then to get a nice foundation, let's talk about the circuit, because there's a ton of different circuits and ways we can get creative and get all like a rector set on this <laughs> and um, add and subtract things to a circuit. So there are some really, there are some basic components that we need. We have to have a venous drainage cannula. We have to have a pump. And with adults, it's uh, exclusively pretty much a centrifugal pumps at this point. We'll talk about why that matters. Then a membrane lung. Um, and then you need the lung needs to breathe. So you have a sweet gas flow where it's breathing in and breathing out. Um, most all membrane lungs that I'm aware of uh, have an integrated heat exchanger. So like some of the membrane lung is dedicated to gas exchange and some of the membrane lung is dedicated to heat exchange. And then you have our arterial return cannula. And you can have like a million additional things in here, like little sensors for pressure or for flow or for bubbles, all kinds of fun stuff that you can add and make your circuit more complicated for better or worse. So what's the knobology of ECMO? Really, it just boils down to these four things. These are the only things you get to mess with once your patient's cannulated, of course. Um, and they show up in your ICU, then you're like, all right, well, I only get four things to mess with. The main thing that we think about is speed. So revolutions per minute with a centrifugal pump is going to dictate flow. Of course, that depends on how much resistance you have throughout your circuit, which is going to be like the size of your cannulas, membrane lung, stuff like that. The second most important thing is going to be the sweep gas flow rate. So this is basically how fast your membrane lung is breathing, the liters per minute of the minute ventilation of your membrane lung. And then if you want, you can have a blender and you can blend in uh, oxygen and air to create um, the fraction of delivered oxygen percent. So this is analogous to the SiO2 on high flow nasal cannula or the ventilator, same idea. And then you can dial in the temperature. And this is usually important when you're 
trying to fool someone or if you're trying to rewarm someone. So these are the two circuits that we use at the University of Washington just to look at a couple of circuits. Um, and there's, again, lots of different brands out there. Um, these are probably two of the most common. So there's the McKay Cardio Health, where the um, membrane lung is this red thing, and then the pump head is actually integrated or attached to the membrane lung. And then this is the motor over here. So we can see the dark um, with the blue um, <clears throat> stripes drainage tubing coming up into this pump, and then it pushes it through the membrane lung and then returns bright red to the patient. This one over here is the Centromag configuration where we have uh, the drainage coming here. And it's nice because you can see the pump separate. So the drainage comes into the center of a centrifugal pump, and then that spins a fan with the uh, revolutions per minute that you set. And that displaces the blood out radially. So it like slingshots it like this, and then it pushes it into this membrane lung. And then once the blood goes through the membrane lung, it bathes all these little polymethylpentene tubules, which, is, which are um, like permeable to gas. Then it'll come out the front of the membrane lung and head towards the patient. Doctor, can I, can I interrupt for a question? Yeah, I see your question. Do um, uh, all, not all circuits have blenders, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you don't have to. Um, so you see our blender here um, is uh, where you're integrating air and oxygen and setting an FDO2. And we also have another blender over here for this one, but you really don't have to. And if you think about it, whenever we're transporting a patient, like going down to CT or if we're flying them in an airplane, we're not using a blender. We're just taking the sweep gas, which is this green tubing here, and hooking it directly up to 100% oxygen, just like right to the nasal cannula port on the airplane or to a uh, bottle of oxygen. So you don't need to blend the gas. Um, and uh, it's to be determined with uh, a currently going RCT to find out, is it better to blend down the oxygen, just like we've learned with it's better to not hyperoxygenate patients with the ventilator. So stay tuned for data in that space. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to show you a CardioHelp pump console screen. Some centers use CardioHelp, some don't. I think the reason that it's helpful is because it just basically talks about some of the data that we're, we can get. And if you, don't, if you don't have integrated pressure transducers in a system, and there's lots of different systems out there, Spectrum is also a really nice one, Nautilus, um, where they have integrated pressure transducers and also um, SCO2 probes and SAO2 probes. Um, it just helps us conceptualize where these pressures are because it's important for understanding resistance. So we set the pump speed, and this is the only thing you actually get to dial and play with, right? Then you're going to get a resultant ECMO blood flow, which is going to depend on all the resistance of the circuit. So these four guys right here that have a P in front are all of your pressures. So essentially, the first pressure as you go through a circuit will be the drainage pressure. So this is how much negative pressure it takes for the pump, the centrifugal pump, to suck blood out of your patient. And then as the, as the blood moves from the pump, post-pump, so now it's pressurized, and then moves into the membrane lung, that's going to be the, your um, essentially post-pump pressure. So it's before the blood has gone through the membrane lung. And then over here, this one's going to be your post-membrane pressure. So where it went um, 
pre-membrane, then it drops across the pressure drop of the membrane lung, and then it moves into the patient. So this, these two pressures are reflective of how much pressure the pump has to push against the patient, and more accurately or more relevant, the size of the return cannula you chose. And then, of course, it does a little bit of math here. 300 minus 275 is 25. So this is that pressure drop across the membrane lung. And every membrane lung is going to be different. So like the Centromag AMG Eurosets, that pressure drop out of the box is like 150 millimeters of mercury. And the CardioHelp is just like 20. So every, all of them are a little bit different. But the main thing that you think about with this, and if you transduce these pressures, is to have you understand where is the um, where is there a high resistor or where is this there's a problem to flow? Say if you're trying to turn up the speed and you're not getting flow. So this is where it's very helpful and diagnostic to figure out, gosh, where is that obstruction to flow? Because it's pretty important once you have someone on bypass to keep the blood flowing. And then over here, this cardio help gives you more information like temperature and then the saturation of the blood that's being drained from the patient. So this is basically going to be whatever's being sucked into that drainage cannula um, that's lying in the IVC. This is the saturation of that blood. So let's talk about patient selection now that we've kind of got our foundation of what our ECMO circuits are, um, the key components. Um, I'm going to introduce you to Steve. So... Steve is 35, his COVID ARDS, he's been intubated for four days, and he has all the things. He's prone, neuromuscularly blocked, inhaled EPO, um, and these are his ventilator settings. So, you know, concerning, we've got um, kind of maxed out on all the things. His PEEP's been idealized with a PV tool and um, driving pressure optimization, so they think his PEEP is as good as it's going to get. Here's his chest radiograph, which is as bill, bilateral low pass. These are diffuse. And here's a gas um, where we have a very concerning P to F ratio, right? And he's frankly hypoxemic uh, and has a respiratory acidosis. Um, he's on a bit of norepinephrine. So we want to think about, is this guy an ECMO candidate? Um, so throw, just take a second here and throw some things in the chat of, would you put this guy on ECMO? Or is there any more information that you want? Um, when you're considering someone for ECMO. We'll just take a couple a couple seconds here for like throwing in some ideas. And again, all all ideas and answers and things are are good. It's a safe, safe learning space. <clears throat> so BMI is a question. Cool. So that might be um, it's there's actually kind of an obesity paradox where we're actually not seeing worsened mortality with higher BMI, but we don't know if there should be an absolute cap because once BMIs get really, really high, their blood their body surface area gets high and it's hard to flow high enough to oxygenate them. Um, and then contraceptive anticoagulation, indeed, especially if this patient has a uh, COVID. Um, ARDS, it can be a little bit tricky, maybe more proclivity for clotting, not exactly clear there. Um, we can run patients on VV ECMO without an, uh, anticoagulation entirely, but it becomes more complicated in septic patients. Medical problems, that's really important, and also to see end organ damage and then mental status. I love it. You guys have all the good stuff. So we want to make sure that this is a person who's going to return to a baseline level of function that has uh, that is good. So this person has to be physically fit enough to survive an ECMO run. And as you guys probably have seen, the ECMO runs are very, very long for COVID ARDS, our median time now in the most recent data in the Lancet is 30 days. 
Um, and then mental status, we want to make sure we don't have a neurologically devastated patient. And we can't be uh, too late, right, that we have multi-organ failure already. In particular, if the liver goes, the patient is probably not going to be able to survive. All right, so now let's look at Sandy. Um, so this is a 55-year-old female, and we'll come back to Steve. 55-year-old female with palpitations for a while. She's hypotensive with rapid AFib with cool extremities. She's intubated, cardioverted, given amiodarone, still persistently hypotensive, and has some end-organ dysfunction with an AKI and starting to get a little bit, um, or an elevated lactate. Um, this are, these are her ventilator settings here. Pretty boring, not concerning. This is her echo here, her apical four chamber. And then here is her, they throw in a swan, and these are her cast numbers. This is the cocktail of rocket fuel that she's currently on. So what do you think about her? Is she a BA ECMO candidate? Or some other things you want to know? Um, how would you know if it's ECMO or another device? Just to kind of see what you guys think about Sandy. So we have a thought of like, would this patient potentially be an LVAD candidate? Would we be able to put a durable LVAD or a percutaneous temporary LVAD? Are we able to just support the left side of the heart or does maybe the right side of the heart need help too? Um, great, we need to have an exit strategy. So we want our cardiologists and cardiac surgeons to weigh in of like, ooh, does this have, a, do we think that this is something that's, are we bridging to native recovery or are we bridging to a durable device or transplant? Um, and then we need to make sure, again, that this person is physically fit enough um, to be able to survive what we're going to put them through if we put Sandy on ECMO and that make sure that she can rehab through everything. Great. So um, all really important stuff and the same things apply too before is neurologic status and a coagulation uh, uh, tolerability is going to be even more important with BA. It's quite hard to run BA without anticoagulation for the entire run. I've actually never successfully done that. Um, and then uh, you definitely want uh, yeah, end organs to be functional enough. Granted, this is shock, so you're, you're trying to catch them where you know that they need big mechanical support before all the organs are dead. Make sure they're not neurologically devastated. This is much easier because these patients generally are not neurologically blocked like the ARDS patients. Okay, so we'll come back to Sandy. Let's basically kind of take a step back and review everything that we kind of know about uh, patient selection for ECMO. So in general, <clears throat> extracorporeal life support organization put forth some guidelines a number of years ago. And we think about, okay, ECMO for patients with acute severe cardiopulmonary failure with high mortality risk. That's refractory to conventional therapy. So it's, we're using it at least at this day and age as a salvage therapy because we don't, it's expensive. We don't have the ability to, to do a, a whole bunch of this and it has some risks for your patient. Um, we want to use it as a bridge to recovery for durable organ replacement or a decision. So ECMO, importantly, as you guys brought up, is used for a disease process with a solution. We really don't want to put someone on if we don't think we have a potential exit strategy or like a, a way to, to get off ECMO. Discontinuation strategies that we're thinking of is recovery of the native um, organ, transplant of the heart or lungs, or with the heart, we have a couple more options for more durable mechanical support. And then if none of these are an option, then we move towards end-of-life care, because ECMO cannot be continued indefinitely, unlike actually most of our other <laughs> interventions can with the ventilator and dialysis, for example, even home inotropes. 
Um, so general contraindications, like we talked about, they're too sick, futility, irreversible multi-organ failure. Even if you put them on ECMO, they're going to die. So they've been on conventional therapy for too long. So intubated for um, a, a longer time is going to, it, every single time we study it, it correlates with increased mortality. Pre-existing life-limiting conditions. So if this patient already has an underlying disease, it's going to kill them no matter what. Then perhaps um, pulling out heroic measures like ECMO is not the appropriate thing to do. Advanced age is really going to be physiologic age. There isn't a specific cutoff. And except for we've been having to use specific age cutoffs for triage. <clears throat> Limited vascular access, if you can't get the cannulas in, they can't go on ECMO. So just to go through some disease-specific indications that probably come up the most often. For VV ECMO, we've got things like ARDS, um, is the most common, refractory hypercarbia, for example, uh, acute asthma exacerbation with inability to ventilate. Pulmonary injury, so in our trauma center, this comes up. Um, bronchopleural fistula, in particular in combination with ARDS, when you can't ventilate the patient and with positive pressure. Bridging patients to lung transplants, so patients who have uh, chronic lung disease end up intubated. You can extend their time on mechanical um, ventilation, essentially, with ECMO and have them walking around easier than it's harder to walk around on a ventilator. Um, and then post thoracic surgery, then things go sideways in the OR. Um, <clears throat> so, and VA ECMO most commonly for refractory medical cardiogenic shock. Um, some centers use this for extracorporeal um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, so with cardiac arrest. Gigantic pulmonary emboli, ECMO is great for that. And environmental hypothermia as well. If you have a hypothermic arrest in particular or hypothermic cardiogenic shock, you can rapidly rewarm a patient. Cardiotoxic ingestions like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, these patients tend to do quite well, or um, overdoses causing electrical instability. And then, of course, numerous different indications, post-cardiac surgery, post-cardiotomy, <clears throat> cardiogenic shock. So let's think about, okay, how do we know when we're, when they're sick enough to need ECMO, but we don't want to, like, wait, like, too long, right? So there's a couple of different criteria, and a lot of, um, we're kind of starting to, as a, as a, community start using probably the EOLIA criteria, but in general, I want to preface this by saying that nobody actually knows what the best criteria for putting someone on ECMO are. We don't really know yet. We're still trying to figure that out. Um, so some of the things I'm going to pull from um, bigger studies include the seizure, in, uh, the seizure inclusion criteria from 2009 that was looking at sending patients to ECMO centers versus non-ECMO centers. Um, and they use a Murray score or a pH. And the Murray score um, is this conglomeration of, like, how bad is your chest x-ray, what's your P to F uh, ratio, what's your PEEP, and how bad is your compliance. And then you can get a score, and that would kind of help you understand how bad is your ARDS. Um, and then the AOLIA criteria, this was a RCT based in France in 2018. They looked at basically a very low P to F, which would be frank hypoxemia for more than three hours, or a P to F less than 80 that's not generally hypoxemic, but lasting for more than six hours, or hypercarbic <clears throat> respiratory failure with a pH below 7.25 for more than six hours. So like persistent <clears throat> problems, and this is despite, all of these are despite, supposed to be despite maximal medical therapy, which should at least include proning, plus or minus neuromuscular blockade. 
And most of these did not include inhaled vasodilators um, pre-selection. So um, let's move into some outcomes. So we have a general idea of like when we're thinking about using ECMO for a patient, we're able to counsel families of like what's the survival from this and then also get an idea of, and unfortunately when we have limited critical care resources, how are we gonna use the resources wisely? So I just put um, out some of the, a couple of select bigger studies and this kind of tells the history of ECMO. So, um, and ECMO is used for adults. So the Lancet trial again, Caesar in 2019, they're seeing a survival benefit of of patients being sent to an ECMO center. Not everybody who went there actually was placed on ECMO, but definitely a survival benefit of going to like maybe an ARDS center. Then H1N1, our first, pen, well, first, the last pandemic hit in 2000. Um, um, and this, this, uh, this paper came out and it was looking at um, basically propens or it was a propensity matching for patients who were referred to ECMO and who were not, and they saw this um, survival benefit. If um, Granted, this was not prospective, but thinking that patients being sent for ECMO were more likely to survive with H1N1 influenza. And then EOLIA, randomizing patients to, um, to quote, early ECMO or not, meeting those criteria. So they didn't have to be, frankly, hypoxemic, but a low P to F ratio. Um, and then they um, saw a statistically insignificant difference in survival, but the study was terminated early. And there's a whole bunch of other things to go into with that study and how do we interpret it. But um, I think the important thing is, is to when we look at patients that are either getting ECMO or not, that people going on ECMO certainly aren't dying more. If anything, it seems like they're trending towards better survival. Um, and this gives you an idea of how sick these patients are, like where their P to F ratio is, what their pH is. I've included PEEP, uh, the mean PEEP for um, these two studies. Um, and then just since COVID has unfortunately <laughs> kind of saturated our resources in many places, I wanted to pull up some of the bigger COVID survival or looking at mortality outcomes papers, and these are all observational. Um, and so the, this tells you kind of the story. This is in um, order in which they're coming out. So the first Barbaro study in the Lancet for the ELSA registry data, survival is 62%, which you can see is really quite similar to survive, um, traditional pre-COVID survival. Then the Euro ELSO, this is um, thousands of runs from hundreds of hospitals in, in Europe, saw survival around 55%. And then the Paris ECMO group saw survival around 46 And so Paris has a a number of ECMO centers, very, very high uh, ECMO volume and expertise. And then Barbaro from the ELSA registry did a second look at the second wave. Um, so centers who are late adopting and um, with survival that has decreased and also comparing um, the second wave to the first wave and early adopting centers, the survival is decreasing. So it is something to, to note that COVID survival is going down on, on ECMO. Now to just look at some VA ECMO outcomes, I think the thing that's pretty tough about VA is where with VV, we're generally talking about ARDS, not all the time, but that's the, the lion's share. With VA, there's just a really hetero, heterogeneous group of patients coming in and they have a lot of different, like widely different survival depending on the disease. So things like myocarditis do really, really well. And then some of these other studies that have like a mixed bag of ischemic cardiogenic shock or acute decompensated heart failure mixed in um, with some valvular stuff like the survival is 
much lower. So it really just depends on what your disease is. Um, and unfortunately, the community in general does not feel there's equipoise to randomize people to um, either get mechanical support when their uh, native heart is failing versus not. So we'll never really be able to say this works or it doesn't, I don't think. Um, but at least we can observe, like, what are the survival for certain diseases and get a general idea of how likely is this to work. I have put PE up here with this 39 survival, but these, this study actually had a lot of patients who were pericardiac arrest or post-arrest. And then, of course, post-cardiotomy, cardiogenic shock. This one generally has some of the lowest um, survivals, generally around 25 to 30%. So again, just showing you that there's like a really wide range of survival really depends on the disease. So then if we want to take a big, big look at <clears throat> tens of thousands of runs for adults, we can look to the ELSO registry. And I think this is quite helpful because this will say, you know, of all comers, our survival for pulmonary support, VV ECMO, is about 60%, cardiac, about 43%, and eCPR, about 29%. And this is looking at centers all over the world. You'll notice that I pulled this right before all of the, <laughs> the COVID data have changed the ELSO registry. So this would be historical pre-COVID, and we're still trying to sort of figure out um, how do we um, assess COVID patients, because they do tend to have worse survival and longer runs than our pre-COVID diseases. So let's move into physiology. So we talked about centrifugal pumps, and why did I say like that's important? Well, I didn't really know anything about mechanical engineering before I <laughs> did medicine, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and why a centrifugal pump is important and thinking about it differently than a roller pump. So roller pumps are the things that you're really familiar with, right? Like dialysis, where they like pinch the tubing and it displaces fluid and moves it forward. Uh, Alaris pumps for medication, kangaroo pumps for tube feeds, those are all roller pumps. Um, and centrifugal pumps um, are going to be everything like your LVAS and Pella um, and ECMO, so centrifugal and axial flow. So the speed is going to dictate the flow, but it really depends on the preload and the afterload of the pump, okay? So some of the things that, the, that contribute to preload are going to be, hey, does this pump have, like, enough of a sink to pull blood out of? Like, is, is the pool that you're um, suctioning blood out of, is it big enough? Um, or is there, you know, no blood there? Or is the, the space holding the blood being compressed? If we have problems with preload, we'd have issues with venous cannula resistance. Remember, that's a really, really long cannula. So Poisson's law tells us that, you know, resistance and length are closely related. Do we have enough blood, central venous blood volume to drain? And then is there something else compressing down on the cava and down on the drainage cannula, like intrathoracic pressure? stuff like tension pneumo or pleur even pleural effusions without tension physiology or um, a pericardial effusion. <clears throat> and then intra-abdominal pressure. This can be everything from a abdominal compartment syndrome to just constipation. And then afterload. So this is when we why we choose our cannulas carefully and try to pick the biggest cannulas that we can without causing problems with the vasculature. Um, and then the membrane lung, most of them in general that they're being manufactured have acceptable pressure drops. They're not particularly difficult to push blood through. 
And then if you're on VA ECMO, the systemic vascular resistance and the mean arterial pressure are going to affect your return, right? So if you're really hypertensive, it's hard for the ECMO pump to push blood back into your patient. So centrifugal pumps are preload sensitive and afterload limited. <clears throat> so if you don't have adequate preload or if you have prohibitively high afterload, you will not flow. And that's why all of those pressures can be helpful when you're trying to figure out, gosh, what's the etiology of my flow obstruction? Like, why can't I flow? So these are a couple of videos um, looking at an adequate pump preload. So here you can see this venous drainage tubing is chattering. So it's just shaking back and forth. Every once in a while, it's a shudder. And then on a cardiac health screen, you can see a couple of things where this venous pressure or the drainage pressure coming pulling the blood out of the patient will get really, really negative. And then when that happens, when it gets really negative, you see the flow drop down. See, it's normally like four and a half. And then when this uh, suction event happens or chatter, it goes all the way down to like 1.6 as the blood flow. So this is a setting, and you can see that these pressures that are post-pump, that are positive, are not going up, they actually just go down when the flow is cut. So this is a situation of access insufficiency where you're unable to drain. So an important um, complication that's gonna happen almost all the time and being able to recognize it um, and, and do something about it. And in general, the first thing you wanna do with, um, with drainage insufficiency is decrease the speed because you wanna kind of interrupt that suction event. You've got like a vacuum cleaner up against like a plastic grocery bag. The only way to get the grocery bag off is to shut off the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Weird analogy, I know, but it stays in my brain. So let's talk a little bit about the physiology of the membrane lung. Um, so we have a blood phase and a gas phase with the membrane lung. The blood, it's going to have oxygen or deoxygenated blood moving through the membrane lung. And then, so this would be the saturation pre-O2 and the saturation post-O2. Same thing with partial pressure. You have a P pre and a P post. And then with the gas, you have uh, the inlet where the um, gas is inhaling, and then you have an exhalation port where the gas moves out. It's like a GI tract. Unlike humans, it's much smarter the way that it's developed. So we don't have all that dead space. Thus, the membrane lung is extremely efficient at removing CO2. So if we look at the membrane lung, uh, kind of break it down, we have all these little tubes that are going to hold the gas for gas exchange and the tubes that are holding water for temperature control. And the red blood cells are just going to kind of mosey on through in between and with eddy currents, pick up gas, deliver gas, and change temperature. As the blood moves across, it's basically the same as dialysis. Um, sweet gas is going to have um, a nice uh, sink for CO2 to move across and to diffuse, and then it will also, the blood will pick up oxygen. Works the same basically as the alveoli in the native lung. So if you increase the sweep gas flow rate, you're going to remove CO2, just the same as, it, as in native lungs. And the reason is a little bit sort of complex, but the main reason that it affects CO2 rather than O2 is the same thing in your lungs. So CO2 diffuses about three <laughs> times faster than oxygen, so it's very sensitive to those diffusion gradients. If you set up a really high diffusion gradient for CO2, it's just going to dump from the blood into the sweet gas. All right, so let's go back to Steve. 
Steve is cannulated for VV ECMO, and here is his data. So I have his uh, cardio health pump screen. Um, this is what his sweep gas is set to. This is what his ventilator is set to. We de-escalated his venter, ventilator gradually after we got him on ECMO. And these are his vitals. So he was satting, um, you know, <clears throat> you, you, you could get him to saturate a little bit better. So um, what, how, what, are, what can we do to improve his, his oxygen saturation? So we'll just take a minute and throw some ideas in the chat. So we're approaching essentially a patient with CV ECMO who's hypoxemic. And what do we do? And all thoughts and answers and ideas are good. <laughs> so options of increasing the flow, right? This his flow isn't very high. Meters per minute. Most adults are going to be um, much more happily supported around four and a half, maybe five, somewhere between four to five. Um, and then how do we do this? Increase the revolutions per minute, and then thus the flow. Great. Um, and then you could decrease the demand, too, depending on if so our first step would be to try to increase the flow here. And then if we had trouble, we can move down our algorithm of maybe we decrease VO2 if we can't improve delivery of oxygen or DO2. And then if we wanted to change the sweep, that was going to be it's going to affect our CO2. So it won't really affect um, our oxygenation just as long as the sweep is turned on. The patient, the artificial lung will fully oxygenate, and then increments of sweep above that will basically just remove more CO2. So let's look at the membrane or look at the VV circuit. So we have uh, S-pre-O2 coming into the pump and membrane lung. Then it's, uh, we have S post. So if you draw gas on the other side of the membrane lung, this is what you're going to see for the oxygen saturation. Then it combines with some of the central venous oxygen blood, and then this moves into the pulmonary artery, right? Because this is the blood entrained around the cannulas. Then it goes into the native heart-lung system. Maybe something happens with gas exchange. And then it moves into the aorta with your SpO2. So you have two circulations in series. So ECMO is basically going to provide gas exchange pre-native lung, since your native lung just really doesn't work. Um, and then if we look at a, <clears throat> a diagram of why higher blood flow matters, so on the left side here, we have high ECMO blood flow, right, big red arrow. And the, the heart is going to do whatever cardiac output it wants or it needs. Right, and so these patients usually have high cardiac output because they're septic and they're usually often young. So this is going to be entraining a whole bunch of oxygenated blood, um, sending it into the pulmonary arteries. So this is good. You're using a lot of bypass. Then say if you turn the ECMO flow down, the cardiac output is going to stay the same. So the blood, the heart is going to need to entrain more of uh, the same amount of blood. So it's going to make up for the decrease in ECMO blood flow with more deoxygenated blood being entrained around the cannulas. Thus, we'll kind of have this cartoon show you a purple pulmonary artery instead of a red one. So essentially, you're just trying to keep up with your um, cardiac output with ECMO blood flow. And there was a nice French study that demonstrated that if you can keep your ECMO blood flow about 60% of the native cardiac output, granted, we're not measuring the cardiac output really ever, but just having that concept in your mind, you should be able to saturate above 88 to 90%. So for Steve, we want to increase his blood flow, right? We don't have very extreme pressures for drainage or return. 
Membrane lung looks good. We have this low inlet saturation, so it looks like blood's coming in fairly deoxygenated. And then if we increase his blood flow, I bet we can keep up with his cardiac output better um, and oxygenate him better. <clears throat> so this is the, the you know, fun foundation of the ECMO. Okay, so this we're going to fast forward a couple days. Now we've got Steve, and he's hypoxemic again. And... Um, and this has kind of happened gradually through the night and then this morning on rounds. Specialist calls you because they're hypoxemic. Throw some things in the chat of what you think is going on and what you want to do. So we've got recirculation. Yes. So what we have here is a patient who has a drainage saturation that's high, and it's higher than the patient's peripheral saturation. And then we have another clue over here where our drainage tubing, the venous with blue, is, the, is bright red, the same as the arterialized return tubing, the red tubing. Um, and then, so what we're thinking is that, oh man, I, it seems like Steve's just like totally excluded from bypass because he's got his drainage cannula is basically sucking out everything that is returning. And we can see on this chest radiograph here, we actually have overlapping cannulas in this case. So that's going to be a higher risk for a lot of recirculation if you have something like that. So just to kind of come back to BV ECMO hypoxemia and an algorithmic approach that I use is assess your ECMO blood flow. Is there an interruption in blood flow? Is it because of access insufficiency and chattering? Like we kind of showed you some videos of and how do you mitigate that? Like turn down the flow, assess what the impairment to drainage is. Or is it a problem with the returns? You like pinch the return tubing and you need to figure that out. Or you're just not flowing high enough. Look at tubing color change. It's the first thing that you want to look at with a hypoxemic patient because you want to make sure that your membrane lung is actually functioning. And then it will also help you in conjunction with your S-pre-O2 or venous drainage saturation if you're having pathologic recirculation. So checking the tubing color, this is normal. Bright, bright is recirculation, and dark, dark is membrane lung failure. So to go through recirculation, if we have normal, this is the, the illustration that we looked at before, recirculation essentially is just like a garden hose and a vacuum cleaner situation. If you turn up the garden hose of the vacuum cleaner really high, you're going to have higher recirculation fraction. Um, and then <clears throat> what you're going to be seeing is, or if they're closer together, of course, a falling um, pulse, ox pulse ox oxygen sat um, and a rising um, S-pre-oxygen sat, and both cannulas may become bright red if it becomes pretty extreme. The treatment, again, is to decrease the speed and then to assess and potentially adjust the cannula position. Um, and then, again, so we're seeing this when something's going wrong with ECMO, turn down the speed. So sometimes people would think, like, more is better when the patient's sick, but almost always the answer with ECMO, turn down the speed and assess what's going on. So here's a nice image of a patient who um, uh, has uh, the cannulas that were quite close and having trouble with recirculation, and when cannulas withdrawn, having improved recirculation. There isn't a, a number that the, that the cannula should be apart. It all totally depends on how much you're flowing, um, what the intrathoracic pressures are like, and cardiac output. There's a lot of variables that go into whether or not you have recirc. But basically, just mess with the cannulas only if you have to and if you have pathologic research. So when you're having recirculation resulting in systemic hypoxemia.
Sorry, Doctor. When you uh, when you have a single cannula, though, is mm-hmm. the approach the same? Um, so it will be. And the the, the trouble with the single, the dual lumen single cannulas is it's usually a rotational or a depth problem. So if you have a, a cannula that's in too deep, it will just sit there and recirculate. It won't offer any of the return blood to go across the tricuspid valve. So generally, you need echo to assess for position malfunction with um, dual lumen. Um, the crescent cannula is nice because it has a lot of radio opaque markers on it, and you can get an, a, a really a pretty decent idea of how deep it is. Avalon is a little harder to tell on X-ray, but just to make sure that's the right depth first. And then if it's oriented where it's flush against the neck, usually the port, the return port, should go across the tricuspid valve. And if you're still having problems consistent with recirculation, you're probably going to need a TEE to look for that return jet across the tricuspid valve. Does that make sense? Sure. So you're just trying to ensure there's adequate entrainment by the heart, essentially, of the blood leading. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Okay, so for Steve, we want to adjust his cannula position because he's having a ton of recirculation. So let's move to membrane lung failure because I mentioned that if you're dark, dark, something's going on with the membrane lung. So there's two different ways this can happen, either intrinsic microtubule failure. This is usually gradual. This can happen in the blood phase or in the gas phase, meaning clotting um, and fibrin accumulation on the in, where the blood is, or you can have the microtubules, the the lumens of them can clog up and have problems with gas exchange. Um, And the diagnosis, you're going to have poor CO2 and or O2 uh, transfer across the membrane lung. Um, And you want to calculate the VO2. There's a really nice paper by Vishnoi Zachary outlining a nice approach for this. Um, And this is when you get a gas before and after the membrane lung. Um, and then if you have a blood phase failure, you'll have a high delta P or high pressure drop across that membrane lung as it accumulates all the gunk and clot and fibrin. A different thing that can happen is sweet gas interruption. It's essentially membrane lung failure because your membrane lung is apneic. So this is going to be hyperacute. It's from disconnecting or running out of oxygen or a, some kind of equipment failure. Your delta P is going to be normal, but these are the ones where they catastrophically fail, and all of a sudden, things are dark, dark. So, um, you know, disconnect the tubing to whatever you've got and rehook it up to the wall and see if you can get the post uh, tubing to be bright again. So with our remaining time, we're going to talk about VA and a couple of things that happen with VA. And then, of course, the membrane lung, um, I wanted to kind of put on the end of VB going into VA because the membrane lung functioning and failing, exactly the same for VB and VA. No difference there. So we're coming back to Sandy. We decided to put her on ECMO. She had a pretty terrible-looking RV and LV, so we wanted to be able to support both ventricles, thinking that a big impella um, or tandem heart wouldn't be enough just supporting the left side. And she's too sick for an emergent LVAT. Uh, or heart transplant, so we want to bridge her on something temporary and see, like, what's going to happen with her native heart. So now we have Sandy on. We've uh, just initiated VA ECMO, and here is her cardio health screen with flow and speed and pressures and her drainage saturation. And then um, her sweep here, her vitals, and her cocktail of medication. So how do we want to improve her blood pressure? What do you guys want to do? And what are your options? 
So yeah, we want to we want to support this patient and we want to flow a little bit higher. And how do we even know how much to flow? Well, in general, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a patient's body surface area, and then we're going to flow about 80% of what a normal cardiac index would be. So if we targeted a cardiac index of like 2.4 for that particular patient, then we should be able to perfuse their organs in general. And there's going to be some different tweaks as we use echo to really dial in the amount of flow that the patient needs, but that's a really good starting point. So most adults are going to need a, um, a flow of probably around four um, is pretty common, four and a half. Um, so three is pretty, pretty low, and this patient's on an awful lot of vasoactives. So just to kind of like break it down and, and talk, and the reason I wanted to pull this up is because I just wanted to talk about VA hemodynamics and how I like to think about it in terms of Ohm's law. Um, so when we think about uh, def uh, per defending a perfusing map, we think about there's going to be contributors from flow, uh, systemic vascular resistance, and right atrial pressure, right? So it's really important that if you're considering a patient for VA ECMO, that it truly has to be that flow is the problem. And flow is the reason, the true reason of their shock. Because if it's not, if it's SVR or right atrial pressure, ECMO is not going to be able to help at all, right? So the only place where you see an ECMO icon here is in flow because all it's doing is augmenting flow in the absence of adequate flow from the native heart. Um, so generally what we do is try to get them on a decent flow, um, so flow index of like 2.4 liters per minute per meter squared is usually enough for most adults. Um, the native heart is going to have some cardiac output as well because you do want some blood flow moving to the native cardiopulmonary tree so it doesn't just clot off. And then with the rest of the blood pressure to defend the perfusing map, we're going to use vasopressors or vasodilators. And then we'll make sure that we have the adequate central venous volume with either needing maybe some volume up front and then quickly moving to diuresis with good heart failure uh, care. So the total systemic blood flow is going to be a composite of competitive flow between ECMO that's retrograde up the aorta and the native cardiac output that's ejecting out of the left ventricle. As you can see here, this is early on in an ECMO run where this mixing point is going to be quite proximal in the aorta. And then as the heart recovers or as you decrease ECMO support, decrease bypass percentage, the mixing point will move down into the thoracic aorta. So let's see, if we have Sandy here, we want to increase her blood flow because she's going to need more flow than this, most adults around four liters, and then we'll be able to augment her flow and then hopefully decrease some of these SVR augmenting medications. So if we move now, let's see, to day four, um, what do you think is going on? She's hypoxemic. Our ventilator starts alarming. Her LVEF is a little bit improved. How do we troubleshoot this, and what is on the differential for hypoxemia, this time with VA ECMO rather than VB? So we've got Harlequin syndrome coming up here. So, so yeah, but it's kind of, um, I think that the, the, most, uh, the most fun thing with VA ECMO is the gas exchange. So let's talk a little bit about how um, VA ECMO gas exchange is very unique. Um, so we've got this chest x-ray from this patient, and we have um, one of my VA ECMO patients dropped a lung, right? So now they have native um, pulmonary failure, but again, this is in the setting of her LVEF, her ejection fraction, improving. 
So now she's starting to eject more. So when we look back at um, of these images, she was here and now she's ejecting more. But this is in the setting of sick lungs. So let's move forward. Um, and so when we think about the way that the ECMO circuit works for VA, um, we think about the central venous oxygen, and it's going to be diverted into two directions. One, it's going to go into the pulmonary artery and move to the native cardiopulmonary tree. And then two, the other piece of it, so like 20% will go here and hopefully 80% will go through ECMO. Then on the other side of things, so this is going to be ejected out of the native heart-lung system into the aortic root with the uh, saturation of um, ar the arterial saturation. And then this is going to be the, uh, the post-membrane oxygen saturation that's being injected retrograde up the aorta. And then wherever that mixing point is, is going, you, when you draw gases on your patient, you have to think, what side of the mixing point am I on? Because if you draw gases that are going to be proximal to this mixing point, so in this upper body, that's reflective of this lung. If you draw gases that are in the lower part of the body, part of the body that's reflective of this lung. So if a patient's hypoxemic, it's really important for you to delineate where are they hypoxemic, what body, body part, and where do you clinically think the mixing point is, because then you can troubleshoot which lung is the problem, okay? So these two circulations are in parallel, and they converge with a mixing point. So you have regionalized gas exchange. So when we look at that here, this is an example where now we've colored the lungs blue to denote a problem with uh, oxygenation. We can see that at the beginning, say like you're not really ejecting, you have a very sad heart. All of these um, proximal aortic branches will be well oxygenated. But as your heart recovers, and if your lungs are still sick, then everything on the top end of your body will be getting hypoxemic blood. So this upper body hypoxemia, also called or South syndrome, um, is what's going to happen when you have the silver lining of an improved ejection fraction in the setting of sick lungs. So this is just outlining that you have regional gas exchange with VA ECMO, and it, can, and it leads to differential oxygenation and differential CO2 removal. So for us to detect something pathologic, we always want to keep the pulse oximeter on the right upper extremity because that's the first branch coming off of the aorta. So we'll detect it when this is happening. So when we think about hypoxemia on VA ECMO, it's much simpler in some respects than VB because we don't have a very long algorithm to think through with VB. Um, it's either going to be membrane lung failure, which we talked about, how to identify that, right? The tubes are dark, dark or it's differential hypoxemia. In differential hypoxemia, there's a lot of different ways we can address this. It may mean that the patient needs to go on a hybrid configuration where we basically do half of the drainage goes to VA and other half of the drainage goes to VB, or hopefully the heart will recover and we can just get them off ECMO entirely. Or maybe we have to convert them to VB. So patients that have like a myocarditis, pneumonitis syndrome, usually the heart gets better before the lungs. Um, and then hopefully we can just fix the lungs and maybe we can continue VA if, we, if the heart needs it. Um, or if we're just having a really, really hard time and the heart is better but not good enough to fly alone, then we would need the VAB combined mode. Um, so if we basically look at this picture with Sandy, we need to do some CPT infection and open this lung back up. 
And that's what we did for this particular patient. And the patient will oxygenate fine in the upper and lower parts of the body now. So to bring it on home, in summary, uh, with ECMO, we have drainage moving through a pump and membrane lung that breathes sweep. And then you have return. Where the return limb is depends on the mode of ECMO. You want to cannulate only with a discontinuation strategy in mind. You use a central uh, centrifugal pump, which is preload dependent and afterload sensitive. So when you have flow inadequacy, you need to figure out if it's an access problem or a return problem and, a, and troubleshoot that to reinitiate flow. You increase the sweep gas rate to decrease your arterial CO2 tension. VV oxygenation is improved with increased blood flow. Look out for recirculation when you have a um, drainage saturation or pre-membrane saturation that's high with a systemic saturation on your patient that's low. And then VA ECMO flow and native output are additive and they're competitive and they result in a mixing point, which results in regionalized gas exchange when you're in peripheral VA ECMO. So thinking about adjusting the lungs in the VA ECMO really depends on where you're drawing the gas and which lung is responsible for that region of gas exchange in the body. And that is it. So thank you guys very much for joining me and um, feel free to send any uh, questions via email or I can look at them in the chat. Thanks again.